Good evening. Before I pray, I'd like to begin by just focusing our thoughts on a couple of verses from Luke chapter 15, the text that we'll be looking at tonight. These, no doubt, the key verses as we think together about restoration. Luke chapter 15, beginning with verse 22. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and, it is, and is found. So they began to celebrate. Would you bow with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we need your touch tonight. We need to be restored. And so now, Lord, as we look to your word, to this well-known but passage with such great depth to it, I pray that you might speak to these, my friends here tonight, that we might hear from you, hear your word, and that your Holy Spirit might apply this word, the words of my mouth, to our lives, that we might come to know how great is your grace. For, we ask, for I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Manhattan is empty during the last week of August. So begins the first sentence of an article that was written for the Atlantic Monthly several years ago. The article was called Winton's Blues. It was written by a man named David Hadju. He is a, a beat writer and a reporter who covers the music scene in New York City. And he tells of one Tuesday evening in late August 2001, he was wandering through Greenwich Village, and he found himself in a small basement jazz haunt, as he calls it. And he went in, he settled down at a, a table toward the back, there was a good crowd there, and began to listen to the band. It, there was no, no uh, headliners there, it was just a four-man combo. But his attention was drawn to a man, the trumpet player. The song that was playing at that moment, he wasn't involved in, so he was standing just to the corner of the stage with his back almost turned to the band, and he was, he was looking down at the floor. And he thought the man looked vaguely familiar. Someone at an adjacent table said, hey, isn't that Wynton Marsalis? He replied, here, I seriously doubt it. Well, the fourth number in the set was a trumpet solo. And the trump trumpet player came to the microphone, and David Hadju realized this was Wynton Marsalis, the great jazz trumpet player. And he began to play. He played a ballad from the 1930s called, I Don't Stand a Ghost of a Chance with You. And his playing was electric. He described how he performed the song in murmurs and sighs, nearly talking the words with his notes. It was, he said, 
and, and a wrenching act of creative expression. When he reached the climax of the song, Marsalis played the final phrase, the title of the song, allowing each successive note to linger in the air a little longer. I don't stand a ghost of a chance. And then a cell phone went off, playing some silly tune with electronic beeps. And everything seemed to unravel for a moment. The audience giggled and started picking up their drinks. The man with the cell phone bolted out the door to the hall to take his call. Marsalis stood there, frozen for a moment, his eyebrows arched at the microphone. And David Hadzu said, at that moment, I wrote, I scrawled on the note, my notepad, magic ruined. And then, Wynton Marsalis began to play. He began to play the notes of the cell phone tune. <laughs> and he, he played the tune. And he repeated it. And he began improvising with it, different variations of the tune. And he changed the keys once or twice. And then he throttled down into a ballad tempo and eased right into where he left off with the song, I Don't Stand a Chance with You. A ghost of a chance with you. And the ovation, as you can imagine, was tremendous. It's a great story, isn't it? Winton's Blues. And I tell it because so often in our lives, there are circumstances where we might scrawl on the notepad of our, our life, magic ruined, whatever it may be. A relationship unravels. A marriage falls apart. A career, a career is lost due to layoff. A financial crisis, a cancer diagnosis. Those of us who are older, our grown children, perhaps going through some uh, heartbreaking situation. Magic ruined. It might be spiritual in our lives. Another spiritual fa failure. A temptation given into. An in inability to conquer a besetting sin. Magic ruined. Here at Christ Church Grove Farm, no doubt for many, maybe many here tonight, the events of the past weeks and months have caused you to, to scrawl on the notepad of your life. Magic ruined. But take heart. Our Heavenly Father takes what seems ruined, and just like the master trumpet player, he restores us. Amen. And when he restores us, often he makes something even greater and more beautiful out of our ruin. We might call it the Heavenly Father's blues. What sin ruins, God restores. What sin ruins, God restores. 
Do you need to be restored tonight? Is magic ruined? The words on the notepad of your life? Well, I have good news. The Father is waiting to restore you. When I was assigned this topic and thinking about what passage to preach from, I couldn't think of a better passage than Luke chapter 15, the parable of the prodigal son, as it's come to be called. So if you have your Bibles, if you have a Bible, I'll ask you to turn there. Some of the passage tonight is in your service sheet, and some, if you don't have a Bible to follow along with, you'll just have to listen closely. Luke chapter 15, and we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 32. Now, I probably don't have to mention what a parable is, but I will really quickly, just in case you're not clear on that. A parable is just a very short story. Jesus spoke in parables all the time. And the key thing to understand about a parable, it's a short story that has a very specific, very uh, specific point to it. It's not like an allegory where every detail means something. It's a simple story with a very profound point to it, especially when Jesus told it. Also, the word prodigal. As I mentioned, this parable has come to be known as the parable of the prodigal son. And, sometimes, and some people think that the word prodigal means uh, wayward, someone who is backslidden, someone who has fallen away, or someone who is lost. Actually, the word prodigal doesn't mean that at all. It literally means excessive, lavish, reckless, spending everything, which is what the prodigal son did with his money. Some commentators and preachers on this passage have mentioned, and I agree, that really it's the father in the parable who is the one who is prodigal. And as we read in those couple verses, in his excessive and lavish love that he showed to the son. So let's look at it together. Luke chapter 15, and I'm going to start with verse 11. And it says there, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. Now you can tell right there with those first two words, Jesus continued, that we're coming in in the the middle of something, aren't we? So we need to pause here right off the bat. Can't even get two words in. We have to pause. We're actually in a, a, what I'll call a mini-series of three parables in this chapter. And the other two, the first two, are in this first ten verses. And in each of those parables that Jesus tells, something is lost, what, is, what was lost is found, and then there's a celebration and rejoicing. Something is lost, that which is lost is found, and there's a celebration. In the first of the parables, he says a shepherd had a hundred sheep, and one of the sheep was lost. And so the shepherd went out into the fields and searched until he found the sheep, and he put the sheep on his shoulder and carried it back. And when he got back, he called his friends and neighbors and said, Rejoice with me, for the sheep which was lost, my sheep which was lost, has been found. The second short parable was a woman. She had ten silver coins. She lost one. Fortunately, she lost it in the house. 
And what does she do? She lights a lamp, she gets a broom, and she searches every nook and cranny of that house until she finds that lost coin. And then when she finds it, she calls her friends and her neighbors, and she says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. And Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. Now, I, de- I bet no one here has never heard this parable before. But if you'd never heard it before, you'd think, aha, I know what's coming. This is a trifecta. I can, I don't even, he doesn't even have to finish. He's going to say, a man had two sons. He lost one. He went out, looked for him, found him, brought him back, called his friends and neighbors, and says, rejoice with me. I found my lost son. Well, that doesn't exactly happen. Jesus throws us a, a curve. He, he, he switches things up on us. There's no formula parable here. This is a story that has a twist to it. We read on. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now, again, I'm not going to go into too much detail about inheritance in in the ancient Near East, but suffice it to say, the two sons of this father, who apparently was a wealthy man, a man of great wealth, they were entitled to an inheritance. By tradition, the older son was entitled to two-thirds, the younger son was entitled to one-third. But you typically waited until the father died. What this son did was rude and disrespectful to the father. And it was an embarrassment that he treated him this way. But he goes to the father, and he says, I want my inheritance now. And the father might think, say, I'm not dead yet. The son here, the younger son, is a picture of teenage rebellion. He lives at home, but he hates every minute of it. Everything turns him off. The household, the farming, the lifestyle of the father, the only thing he likes about the father is his money. And the father shows no sign that he's going to die soon. And so the son loses his patience, and he goes to the father, and he says, give me my share of the estate. And the father gives it to him. Now keep in mind, wealth in this time was a little different than it is now. The father didn't just go and and cash in the son's trust fund. He didn't go to the bank and withdraw money. Wealth was in land and property. He had to sell one-third of his property and cash that in to give to the son. That means it was lost. It was gone once he cashed it in. It's not like money today where you can invest and you can grow it. You can't grow land. People didn't pick up the Wall Street Journal back in those days, read it and say, hey, honey, our land just produced another two acres. It didn't work that way. So when the father had to cash in the land, it was gone. But that's what he does. And the son goes off. And he goes far, putting as much distance between himself, himself and the father as he can. And he goes off into a foreign land and spends the money in wild living. And you can use your imagination as to what that was. And he runs out of money. 
just as a famine hits. Verse 13, not, after, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. And after he had spent everything, all the father's money, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He needed to find money so he could eat. But there was a famine. And there were no jobs. And so the best he could find is a job as a swineherd feeding the pigs. Nice gig for a Jewish boy. I suppose he was thinking, magic ruined. So there he is. He's watching the pigs eat as he feeds them the husks. And he thinks they eat better than me. It says in verse 16, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. But no one gave him anything. Must have been a Republican administration in that country, right? (laughs) I just had to get that in. And so there he is in the pig pen, feeding the pigs, covered in muck, and his mind turns back to the father into the father's house. And he begins to think, you know, I'm in such bad shape here, even the food I'm feeding the pigs is starting to look pretty good to me. If I go back home, if I go back to the father, I could at least be one of his hired hands. His hired hands, they have a roof over their heads, they have food to eat, Now, the hired hands weren't even servants who lived in the house. These were tradesmen that lived in the town. That's all they were. But he felt, I can at least go back and do that. Notice here that he has gone through all the steps that we've talked about over this Lenten series. He experienced brokenness. He came to a point of repentance there in the pig pig pen turning around to go back to the Father. He even had his confession all worked out. It says, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, and here's the confession, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. Brokenness, repentance, confession. But notice, he didn't expect restoration. He didn't expect restoration. He had no thought of being restored back to his former place as a son and as an heir. All he had planned was to go back and ask his father for a job as an apprentice trademan, and that was okay because at least he'd have a roof over his head and some food to eat. Apparently, he felt his father had a little grace, but he didn't realize how much grace the father had. I think that's a lot like us. I think it's a lot like us. Have you ever said to yourself, 
I have. Have you ever said to yourself, I'll bet I'm such a disappointment to God. He's got to be so disappointed with me. And when we think like that, we, have, we end up with a God of little grace, much like the younger son here. You know, I think we put limits on God's grace. We're warned from the pulpit about the dangers of cheap grace, and that's true. And in our minds, we hear Paul there in Romans saying, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, by no means. And so we get a little unbalanced when it comes to grace. We get a little unbalanced. We end up with a God of little grace. And then we start thinking, he's got to be so disappointed with me. All I can do is grovel back. And I won't ask for much. I think we need a corrective today in the church. I think today we need to hear more about God's big grace, his big love. We need to remind ourselves again how great God's grace is. And that's what happens to the young son as he comes back. Now we get to the heart of the matter in verses 20 through 24. So he's repented, he's got his confession all memorized, and it says in verse 20, so he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He had it all memorized. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead. He's alive again. He was lost. And he's found. And so they began to celebrate. Do you know what this means? This means that the father restored the son all the way back. He restored him back to being his son. Instead of disapproval for what he had done, instead of being judgmental, he welcomed him back and he lavished on him the best that he had, the best robe, a ring in sandals. He's fully restored to his position in the family. And then he says, we've got to celebrate. We've got to celebrate and have a party. You know, this, takes us, this parable takes us not only to the heart, of the heart of the parable, it takes us to the heart of the gospel, doesn't it? Remember each of those first two parables, the lost sheep and the lost coin? The part I didn't mention as I went through those is that each one of, each one of them ends with Jesus saying that in the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. 
And when the, the parable of the lost coin, he says in the same way, I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. We need to be reminded of God's astonishing love. I also didn't mention, because we have to go back to the very beginning of chapter 15, that there's an audience for these parables. Jesus isn't teaching the disciples here. Luke tells us that Jesus had attracted a crowd. He had, attra- he had attracted a crowd of people that um, might, we might call the scum of the earth. Luke just calls them tax collectors and sinners. Did you know there's a church out in Denver called Scum of the Earth Church? Have you heard of that? It's true. You can go on the web, scumoftheearthchurch.net, and find it. It's interesting. They say that they are a church for the left out and the right brained. That's quite a mission statement. That they minister to people that don't feel welcome in the regular church. They minister to the punks, the ravers, the skaters, and the homeless people. You know, those are the people that were attracted to Jesus. And here we see Jesus, as he's telling these parables, he's sitting there with the scum of the earth. But the Pharisees, the religious people, the church people who pray every day and go to church every night, every Sunday, Sabbath, and who obey all the laws, they see Jesus with these people, and they begin to mutter, Luke says. They begin to mutter. It's a good word. I think we should have a sign in our churches, saying, no muttering aloud, don't you? (laughs) Muttering never leads to any good. No muttering aloud. They began to mutter. So these parables, these stories, they're aimed at the Pharisees. The heart of the gospel is God's love and God's grace. God loves the sinner, and there's rejoicing and celebration in heaven when one sinner repents. Did you ever stop to think, that when you came home, the angels sang? Grace is astonishing. One of my favorite expository preachers, Lee Eklov from Chicago, puts it so eloquently. He says this, listen to the words. Grace is God's most astonishing resource. He doesn't have to do it. At every turn in our Christian lives, God gives us gifts that we don't deserve and we could never earn. There is grace in every battle against the dark enemy. There is grace at every gathering of God's people, in every prayer that we lift, and every song that we sing. Grace not only saves us, it makes us rich. God's grace constantly flows in and out of our lives and gives us gifts that we could not imagine were they not spelled out in the golden pages of Scripture. God's grace comes to us alive and laughing with healing in its wings. Christ's grace not only reckons us righteous by his merits, but slowly works the righteousness of Christ into our very DNA so that we actually become like righteous people in action and thought. Until one day, incredibly, we will be like him. And then, on that day, grace will lead me home. 
Love those words. Astonishing grace. See, restoration begins as grace leads us home back to the Father. And then restoration demonstrates to us God's astonishing grace. And finally, restoration means that we have to come to the party. There's a third part to this parable. And time is short, so I'm going to try to abbreviate it a little bit. Uh, Probably best another sermon another day. But very briefly, because this is really where Jesus is going. Verse 25. He says, meanwhile, the older son was in, the older son, the older brother, was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he, because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry and refused to go in. Here's where Jesus throws in a twist that is worthy of of, uh, a writer like M. Night Shyamalan. Because what suddenly his hearers realize is that both brothers are lost. Both of them have left the father. One went to a far country and spent all his money. One stayed home. But really, he was just as far from the father. He really had no love for the father, no conception of the father's love or, for his, or love for his brother. He only refers to him as that son of yours when he speaks to the father. You see, the older brother also misunderstood grace. To him, serving the father was a duty. He did it, but he did it because that's what a good son does. And so it wasn't a joy. It was work. It was drudgery. He felt like a a slave in the father's house. And, but at least he thought, I'm better than everybody else. And then when he sees his father's joy at his brother's return, he doesn't understand. He doesn't get the celebration. The older brother here is a cautionary tale. Now, Jesus was obviously aiming that at the Pharisees who were muttering. It's a cautionary tale, though, for us. Because there's a danger that we, those of us who serve the Lord, that we um, could become graceless. Those of us who stay home, who go to church, who attend the Latin services, there's a danger that we, in our service to the Father, can become graceless. And when we become graceless, we lose our joy. And worst of all, we lose touch with the Father's heart. We mutter like the judgmental Pharisees. And when the Father's grace we see the Father's grace toward those who, who, who don't deserve it as much as we do, who haven't paid their dues. We refuse to come to the party. We refuse to celebrate. 
You see, we too can become lost. And so that's why we need to think about God's grace daily. We need to celebrate the grace of God as he welcomes home the lost and also celebrate what he's done in our lives and celebrate and share together what God's grace has done in all of our lives. You know, that's what church is all about. That's what we do here. We celebrate. We celebrate salvation together. And when we come to celebrate salvation, we're restored. Brennan Manning tells the story of Edward Farrell from uh, Detroit who went to Ireland to visit his uncle, his uncle Seamus, on his 80th birthday. Uncle Seamus' 80th birthday. He travels to Ireland to visit his old uncle, and they celebrate the birthday with a dinner. And then they, they walk out together, and they sit on the shore of Lake Killarney, and they watch the sunset. And on that evening, it was a beautiful sunset. And as the sun is just dipping below the horizon, Uncle Seamus, this 80-year-old man, he gets up, and he just starts skipping down the shore of the lake. And Edward Farrell chases after him, and he says, Uncle Seamus, Uncle Seamus, what's gotten into you? And the old man turned around and replied, he said, the father is fond of me. I, the father, is very fond of me. You know what? He's fond of you. He's fond of you. He's fond of you. Come into the party. Experience God's astonishing grace. What I challenge you to do tonight as we come to the Lord's table, which in itself is a celebration, as we come to the Lord's table and you bow and you kneel to take communion, take a few extra seconds, just a few extra seconds. It's okay. Don't be rushed. The elders will wait. And just stop and say to yourself, the Father is very fond of me. And let that flow over you and be restored. Can you do that? Will you do that? Let's pray together. Father, I pray now that you would touch us with your grace, your astonishing grace, that we would come to understand tonight as we celebrate salvation that you are a God of big grace and big love. Restore us tonight. Restore us. In Jesus' name.